Today we're concluding our series of sermons entitled The Cost of Discipleship. So far, following Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, and if you have not read that, I would strongly recommend it to you. It's one of 40 books that Christian book distributors said were absolute must-reads for any Christian. So I recommend that book. I, I could not recommend it too highly. Well, based on Bonhoeffer's um, cost of discipleship, we've been talking about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace being the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is grace without discipleship. While costly grace, on the other hand, means following Jesus in such a way that we abandon trust in ourselves, that we surrender everything we are and everything we have to him. We've also seen that many Christians today want to insist that grace is so all-sufficient that we need nothing else, that there is nothing one has to do but speak the words to profess the faith and that grace will cover everything. But Scripture is clear that true faith requires obedience and that faith without obedience is not really faith. I've quoted a number of scriptures in support of that in previous weeks, but I will only use one now. John the Apostle writes in 1 John, the second chapter, We know that we have come to know Him, that is Jesus, if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. True faith requires obedience, and faith without obedience is not really faith. And over the past weeks of this sermon series, uh, we've looked at what it means that we are called to put Jesus before everything and everyone else. That includes even Jesus coming before our parents, our spouse and children, our brothers and sisters, that it is necessary for us to put him before even the closest family members if we are to be a true disciple and follower of his. But that isn't all. Last week we talked about the fact that being a true follower of Jesus means not only putting him in our relationship with him first, but it means being willing to change our very values in a way that the world simply will never understand. In ways that will cause others to think there's something wrong with us, perhaps even that we've gone insane. We are told in Matthew 5, do not resist an evil person. Jesus tells us, do not defend ourselves if attacked. If someone sues us, we should give them more than they demand. We must give to anyone who asks. We must, we must love our enemies, pray for our persecutors, love those even who don't love us back, greet our enemies as friends. This would all seem truly insane except for one thing. It was Jesus himself who commanded this of us, and it was Jesus who modeled this in his own life, which is why he would willingly go to his own death rather than fight or to call down angels or to call forth his disciples to fight a battle to protect himself. Well, with these very strange kingdom values, how are we supposed to do this? Given these seemingly impossible expectations, how should we then live as Christians and disciples of Jesus? How do we pull this off? Well, to begin to answer those questions, I want us to look at a scripture passage from today's sermon. This is from Matthew 5. This is actually earlier in the same chapter of what we looked at last week about love your enemies. This is Matthew 5, beginning with the 13th verse. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May God add his blessing to this reading of of his word. In this passage from Matthew 5, we are given the very powerful metaphors of salt and light. Jesus is telling his followers, both his followers then and his followers here now, who and what we are supposed to be using these two very powerful metaphors. These things, light and salt, have something in common. And that is that neither salt nor light are important in themselves, but only important because of the effect they have on their surroundings. By itself, salt is just a rock. But when you add it to food and allow it to penetrate, it not only adds saltiness, but it awakens and enhances all the other flavors in whatever you add it to. Salt also acts as a preservative. It stops and prevents corruption and decay. It stabilizes and prevents the natural breakdown of meats and other foods. It's an astonishing thing, salt. But the value, again, is not in salt itself, but it's in the effect that it has on things with which it comes in contact, for the impact it has on other things. Similarly, light is valued less for itself than for the impact that it has on its surroundings. The purpose of light is not just to have light. We don't ignite a light in order to be able to look at it. Light pierces the darkness, and it allows us to accurately see the things around us. But both salt and light can stop having an impact on their surroundings, and as Jesus points out, they then have no value. Salt can lose its saltiness. In fact, in Jesus' time, almost all the salt they had in Israel was from the Dead Sea. How many of you all have been to the Dead Sea? The Dead Sea is so salty that you can't sink in the Dead Sea. You automatically float. So most of the salt they used in Jesus' time was taken from the Dead Sea, but it tended to be mixed in with other impurities. And because of those impurities, it was possible for Dead Sea salt to lose its flavor, to lose its saltiness. And in those cases, it would lose its usefulness and could only be thrown out. Likewise, as Jesus says, light is only valuable when it can be seen and when it illuminates its surroundings. If you take a light and you put it under a bowl or a basket, you completely cancel out the value of that light that it allows you to see the things that surround it. So both salt and light are valuable only insofar as they have an impact on their surroundings. Otherwise, they're useless. Salt, that it's lost its flavor. Light that cannot be seen has no value for anyone. This is Jesus' definition of the Christian life. It is his definition of those who make up his body, which is the church, both in the first century and today. The church does not exist for its own sakes. Christians do not exist for their own sake, but for the effect that we can have on our surroundings. You see, many, perhaps even most Christians, tend to focus on their salvation as being their salvation, that I am saved in Christ Jesus, that Jesus has saved me for my own sake, almost as though I deserved it somehow. I'm a good person, Jesus has saved me, and it's all about me. 
We've told people for so very long from the pulpit that Jesus would have died for their sakes even if they were the only person in the whole world. And that is true. Christ would have sacrificed himself for even one person. But we stop there. And we don't continue and say to people, there's more to it than that, though. That's not the end of the story. We leave people thinking that their salvation was given only for their own comfort and security. And that once their security is established, that's the end of the story. We don't take the next necessary step and say, but why did he save us? Particularly, why did he save me, me specifically? And then why did he leave me here? Why, what does he desire from me? Why did God, the moment I was saved, the moment I came into relationship with him, why did God not take me up into heaven so that I could be present with him forever? Well, the answer was very simple. Jesus saved us to give us, granted, security and eternity, but that's not the whole story. Jesus saved us, but then God left us here in these lives for a while because we have work to do. So the real question to answer to the question, how should we then live as Christians, as true Christians, true disciples of Jesus, comes in the answer to another question. And that question is, why are we here? When Jesus says you are salt and light, he is giving you a job description. When we accept Jesus Christ, we accept the position, the responsibility to fulfill the role of being salt and light in the world. Because we were not saved for our own sakes only. We were not left here because we were saved by God and then God got too busy to do anything else with us until Jesus returns. The reason we are here, the reason we were saved, and the reason we have been left here until Jesus returns is because we have a job to do, and that is that we are supposed to be salt and light to the world. Like salt, we are here to be a preservative and a force that enhances and awakens the world, as salt enhances and awakens the flavor in anything you add it to. Like light, we are to illuminate our surroundings, to make it clear to people exactly what their circumstances are, how lost they really are, and how they can find their way out of darkness. And that's why we must be in contact with those who are still in the world. Any Christians or any churches or Christian communities who think that their job is to try to isolate themselves from the world has not read this passage of Scripture and taken it seriously. You cannot be salt and light if you never get close enough to the world to be tasted and seen. I've said that many times. I can remember going to a service at a church in Southern California. They had just opened a graduate school. And the elder of that church who prayed the prayer of dedication for that new launching of this graduate school gave thanks to God that they could now take a child from kindergarten and that child could go all the way through to a master's degree level and never have to be exposed to the world. And I'm listening to him pray this prayer saying, Lord, forgive us for thinking that way. If we do not come in contact with the world, and by the time a Christian is a graduate student, they should be serious about this, maybe not kindergarten. If we don't come in contact with the world, they cannot know salt and light that Jesus wants them to experience. 
Most Christians still think that it's all about them. It's all about their salvation, about their spiritual and even their physical comfort. That's the very definition of cheap grace that we've been talking about. That my salvation, that my relationship with God is all about me and what I need and what I want without any of the demands for obedience or discipleship, without any of the sense that I must put Jesus before everything else in my life. That is what cheap grace is. And most Christians today, I would go so far as to say, that's how they think about it. It's all about me and my salvation. I have arrived, so I can relax now. But we've been given a job description. Jesus demands that he comes before everything and everyone else in our lives. He insists that if we love him, we obey his commands. And those commands include dying to ourselves, becoming a living sacrifice, and sometimes that means even going to our literal physical deaths for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. That's what Bonhoeffer means in The Cost of Discipleship when he says, when Jesus calls a man... He bids him come and die. That's true for women too. Whether we have to die to ourselves in order to put Jesus first, or in Bonhoeffer's case, to literally be executed as a martyr to the truth of the gospel, as he was by the Nazis. So we have to answer the question, why are we here? Why are we still here? Jesus has given us a job description. We are here because we are not to focus on ourselves. We are not here just for our own sakes or our own comfort. We are not here to make sure we put ourselves first to get as much for ourselves out of this Christian deal as we can possibly get. No, we are here to serve Jesus, to put him first. We are here to be his witnesses, to be salt and light to a world that is suffering from corruption and decay and darkness, a world that is dying and in pain and in desperate need of salt and light. We are here to be witnesses to the truth of Jesus even when many people don't want to hear it. When many people don't realize that's exactly what they need to hear, that's exactly what they want to hear, we are to be those witnesses. You see, when we get that right, when we understand our job, when we understand that as Christians we are still here for a reason, when we are clear that we have a job to do as the children and servants of Jesus, then everything else becomes possible. The passage in Matthew 5 ends by saying that that if we are salt and light, then our good deeds will give witness to God the Father. We become the ones that people see God in when we are obedient to Him, when we have our priorities straight, when we understand why we're here and that we have a job to do, then we will begin to learn to put Jesus first. Then we will begin to do the very hard, even impossible-sounding thing of living by a completely different set of values. If I am confronted by violence and I honestly have grown in my spiritual maturity to the point that I think that my witness of the truth and love of Jesus Christ is more important than my own life, will that not change how I respond? Will that not cause me to be what Jesus told us to be, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to give to those who ask, 
Only when we understand that our job is to be salt and light in the world and that that's our responsibility, only when we have that embedded in us will we be able to live in the way we were told to live. To know how we should then live, we have to understand why we are here. When we have the priority straight, when we understand why we're here, we will put Jesus first and we will begin to live by the impossible-sounding values that he's given us. When we understand and accept that we are to be salt and light in the world and that that assignment comes directly from Jesus, then we will be able to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us, to give to all who ask, and all the rest. And so, my brothers and sisters, if you understand that you are here for a reason, if you accept the responsibility, if you are truly the children and disciples of Jesus, who is the very Son of God, and you know now that you have a job to do, to be salt and light to the world, to bring flavor and preservation and illumination to those who are decaying and in darkness, if you get that, once you accept that, we all have a job to do for Jesus, then you can embrace costly grace. Then you can understand what it means to surrender yourself and everything in your life to Jesus. Because then you will understand it's not all about you and what you're getting out of it. But instead it is about Jesus and his desire for us. The one who gave everything for you and me. The one who demands everything and who deserves everything in return. Amen.